Being seated, I invite you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn back to 1 John chapter 5, that passage we read a little earlier. Do you personally have a birthmark? If so, you are among a minority of people in our world. It's just about 10 to maybe 11% of all babies are born with a birthmark. But of course, if you know anything about them at all, I've seen ones who have them, you'll know that birthmarks come in various shapes and sizes. And from what I read, they come also in various categories. They have what's called a vascular birthmark, and it's associated with blood vessels underneath your skin. That's the cause of it. And then they have also pigmented birthmarks, and it's due to change in color within your skin. And some of them are brown, and some of them are black, and some of them are even bluish. Um, different kinds of birthmarks. They call, one's called a stork mark. It's very pink, almost red. And most people have them on their face or their neck. Um, a port wine one. If you have a port wine birthmark, 0.03 percentage of people in the world have this. It's the rarest of all kinds of them. And it, it tends to be pink and sometimes even purple. Um, although there are so many different kinds and so many different sizes of birthmarks, one thing they all have in common is that if you have a birthmark, it's permanent. Now, for some people, that's no big deal because sometimes it's small, not a big thing, or it's someplace where it's covered all the time and nobody really ever sees it. And so it's not a big deal. But for other people, their birthmark is larger, more visible. And for some, like Mikhail Gorbachev, it's so obvious. You remember him? He had the one the big on his head. He was known for that. For them, it's more difficult to deal with it every single day. In fact, I read an article this week, and the title of the article was Embracing Your Birthmark. And I read the article. It was written for people who had physical birthmarks, but yet they struggle with them. They call, it, it, it calls attention to them in ways that are unwanted. And in writing the article, the author was trying to say that there is a purpose and even a meaning for your birthmark. So let me ask you a second question. Do you have a spiritual birthmark? If so, again, you're in a minority of people in our world. In contrast to physical birthmarks, spiritual birthmarks only come in one shape and one size, the cross. They are always red in color because they have been put there by the blood of Jesus. And unlike physical birthmarks, spiritual birthmarks don't show up on your skin or your face or your neck or your body. They show up only on your heart and on your soul. And of course, all birthmarks, physical or spiritual, they are all permanent. They are forever. Every single child of God John says in our text today, everyone who is truly born of God, as he puts it, has a spiritual birthmark. There are no exceptions to it. It's not just 10% of God's people have one. No, it's 100%. And although the birthmark is invisible to the naked eye and it's because it's on your soul, can I tell you this? It's visible to everyone because it radically changes 
and transforms the way that you live your life. And like the article, I like to make the comparison. First John, the letter that he is writing is to people who have spiritual birthmarks. And if you have that this morning, if you're a child of God and you have a spiritual birthmark, here's what John wants you to do. He wants you to embrace your birthmark this morning. See, because not everyone finds that as easy as it sounds. For some, you embrace your spiritual birthmark, being a child of God every day. You love it. It's what drives you. It's your motivating factor in everything. But for others, sometimes because of battles in their own life, because of circumstances and situations, you see, they struggle with it. For others, and there might be a number here this morning, maybe you're here for the first time or you come here regularly, and you have to be honest if you would admit it, that you struggle with even knowing for sure whether you have a spiritual birthmark. But whatever the case might be in any of those three categories, John's message this morning from our text is for you. The main idea I want you to get this morning that John makes it clear for all of us to understand is this. Everyone who has a spiritual birthday will also have spiritual birthmarks. Let me say it again. Everyone, without exception, because he mentions the word everyone three different times. Verses 1 and 2 and 4, because he wants you to see that this is true of everyone who has really, truly been born of God. Everyone who has a spiritual birthday will also have spiritual birthmarks. And so we might even say it this way, no spiritual birthmarks, no spiritual birthday. So let's ask two important questions of our text when it comes to understanding, as the text says, the meaning and purpose of those things. Number one... What does it mean to be born of God? Number two, simply, what does it look like? So let's unpack and tackle each one of those this morning in the few minutes we have together. What does it mean to be born again? That's important. Born of God, born again, um, they're very similar. Same concept for sure. Born of God is used seven times in 1 John. In fact, it's used a number of times, mostly in our chapter. Now, to be born of God, or as Jesus would put it, be born again, you've seen it, haven't you? Have you been to or watched television and on the football games, someone else, someone's holding up a sign, John 3, 3, or John 3, 7. That's the reference in John's gospel, who also wrote 1 John that we're studying. That's the phrase, you must be born again. And a lot of people think being born again is for people who have a need or have had a religious experience. Do you remember, I know I'm dating myself, but do you remember John Denver? Do you remember the songs? I I started guitar when I was in sixth grade, and that was the first book I was given. Uh, Simple Songs by John Denver. And he has a song, Rocky Mountain High. It's kind of a catchy tune. I don't know if you've ever heard it. But the first verse goes like this. Listen to him. And, And understand this. John Denver was a pantheist. He didn't believe in God. He didn't believe in God as the creator, but he worshiped basically creation. In his first verse, it says, he was born in the summer of his 27th year. Born. Coming home to a place he'd never been before. Listen to what he thinks it is. He left yesterday behind him. You might say he was born again. You might say he found a key to every door. You see, It was a religious experience for John Denver. See, for him, it was looking at creation and says, oh, that's the key for me. He's my life's better because I've seen an eagle fly, he goes on to say later. Because John Denver found his religious experience 
in the Rocky Mountains. And other people think, oh, that's what it means to be born again. You're just looking for a religious experience to complete your life. Others think, and I've read, to be born again is for people who need some sort of moral structure that's lacking in their life. And most of the time in the personal stories I've read, they talk about people who share their story of addiction. And whether it's alcohol or drugs or money or sex or something else, they're always personal stories of dramatic moral changes. And for a lot of people, they think it's synonymous with this. To be born again means to kind of turn over a new leaf or I'm going to start going in a different direction now. My life is falling apart and I've got to do something different. But the problem with those two understandings or approaches to born again, whether it's a religious experience or moral structure, is they are completely opposite of how Jesus uses the term born again in the Gospel of John In John chapters 3 and 4, Jesus does two interviews with two vastly different people. They couldn't be more different. John 3, he talks to a religious leader by the name of Nicodemus. And in John 4, he talks to a Samaritan woman at the well whose name is not even given. But everybody knows who she is and what she's really all about. But see, Nicodemus, if you read the story, was a man who already had a religious experience. In fact... Jesus calls him with the definite article, the teacher of Israel. He was at the top of his religion. You couldn't have had a better or a greater religious spirit in the Jewish culture than he had. He was highly educated. He was highly successful. He was highly wealthy. But Jesus says to this man with the greatest of religious experiences, Nicodemus, you must be born Again, you see, Nicodemus, not only was he incredibly religious already, but for Nicodemus, he was already had an impeccable moral structure. He was the fundamentalist of his day. He had, he was very moral, in fact, incredibly moral, especially compared to the woman at the well. You see, the woman at the well was irreligious, she was immoral, she had a broken life, she was unsuccessful, and she didn't have a lot of money. But it wasn't to her that Jesus says, you must be born again. It was the guy who had the complete moral structure, the guy that was incredibly religious. It's to him, Jesus says the words, you must be born again, because being born of God is not a religious experience. It's not just adding a moral structure that you're lacking in your life. It's a whole new life. You see, it's not a new start. It's not just a new direction. It's a new life. It's not an extreme makeover. It's a completely new construction. And that's why John, in his epistle and in his gospel, talks about being born again, and he uses this metaphor. It's a birth. Listen, to be born again is not taking your old life and reshaping it and reforming it into something else that makes you better. No, it's a completely new life. It's not your life. It's Jesus' life now inside of you. It's not just getting more religious. It's not just going to church more often. It's not just picking up your Bible occasionally when you never did before. Oh, it's way different than that. See, Jesus says to all those here this morning who are successful and educated and religious and moral 
and have a house in Hamilton with two cars and a good job and a wonderful family and nice children. Here's what he says to us this morning. You must be born again. It's for all of us. And that's why three times in our text, he says everyone, everyone, everyone. Why? Because whether you're the Samaritan woman or you're Nicodemus, no matter what your religious or non-religious structure or morality is, all of us, because of our sin, must be born again. You see, that's what it means. So I want you to know and take that definition, that understanding into the remainder of our text this morning because the second question says, well, if you understand being born again and you are born again, then how would you know it? How would you have assurance? Or what would it look like? Well, John gives three what I call born again or born of God birthmarks. But I want you to note before we look at each one that they are coupled together, belief and behaviors. Because being born of God, being a Christian, being saved, is not purely intellectual. It's not just giving assent to the fact that Jesus is God, he was lived a perfect life, he died on the cross, he rose again and he ascended. All of those things are true. All of them are in the Bible. And you must believe them, John says, to have eternal life. But it's not purely intellectual. He says, it's also behavioral. It will change you. Being born again or born of God does not leave you the same. It is a change that incurs in your life from the inside out. So it is not either or, it is both and. Believing in Jesus, verse 1, and loving like Jesus. Look what he says. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, there's our term, which is used three times in our text, has been born of God, a completely new life. And, and the conjunction is crucial because it's not just believing things, although that's crucial. He says, and everyone. See, he says, I want you to know, everyone will believe certain things and you will behave certain ways. They go together. And there's a lot of people that believe that I can accept the intellectual doctrinal facts, but it never alters or changes my life in any way, shape, or form, but it's still okay because I said a prayer or I acknowledge those things. I can tell you that's not the biblical understanding of born of God. And who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him, whoever has been born of him. You see how the Bible frames this text? Look at verse 1. There's something that you believe. And at the end of the text in verse 5, there's something that you believe. In fact, the word believe is used in verse 1. It's used in verse 5. In a form of it, verse 4, the word faith. For all the beginning, the ending, and the middle, here's what he says. Believing really matters. What you believe about Jesus, who he is. The first verse, verse 1, says you have to believe that he is the Christ. Verse 5 says you have to believe that he's the Son of God. Both of those are royal terminology. It's telling you that Jesus is the King. And you must believe that. Nathaniel, when he met Jesus, and Jesus knew where he was and what he was doing before he ever got there, and Nathaniel responds to this to Jesus. He says in John 1, he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Those are our two terms. 
because they are synonymous in their minds. He is the king. He is above all else. He is the true human, the son of God, the one that was to come into the world. And see, you have to believe those things. Jesus wasn't a good moral teacher. Just a, he wasn't just a good example. He wasn't just a model for us to be, follow so that we could have good behavior and raise a good family. No, he's more than that, much more. He's the son of God. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of the universe. See, that belief, hear me, that belief makes you a part of the royal family, not like the British royal family by any stretch, but the heavenly royal family. Because people who have been born of God love the Father, hear me, and love all of those who have been born of him. You see, in our culture today, because of our expressive individualism, there is a thing going on today that you can be spiritual without God and you can be spiritual without church. Let me tell you what the Bible calls that, a lie. You cannot be godly or spiritual without God or without the church. There is no such thing as just private spirituality, which says this, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. I always thought, imagine this, that someone comes up to you and they say, hey, Pastor Walker, I mean, Pastor Walker, hey, I want you to know I really like you, I love hanging around with you, but your wife, not so much. And your kids, you're going to say, oh, that's okay, I don't care, you can hate my family, but you and I, no one's going to say that. See, you can't say this, well, Jesus, I love you, your bride, the church, Christians, other children in your family, not interested in them. See, when you are born of God, here's what it means, that you love Jesus, you love God, you love his bride, and you love his children, the church. See, it doesn't mean, though, that there won't ever be problems, and not everything and everyone in God's family is as lovable as we might should be. And so there will be sibling struggles, there will be disagreements, I remember growing up, my sisters, Lorena and Michelle, Molly, I just got back from a vacation with all of them, and we get along great. But there were times growing up as children that we didn't, and it was, are they listening? Are you? It was all your fault, by the way. <laughs> so my sisters, back, do you remember when these Sears was big, and JCPenney, and they used to put out catalogs? you remember those? Shake your head, because you have to be probably 50 to remember that, right? And they were big catalogs. And so back in the day, my, we'd get one in the catalog. I don't know how often, every six months or something in the mail. My parents would get one. My, my sisters, Lorena and Michelle, they would take the catalogs, and they would take scissors, and they would cut out the guys and the girls that were all dressed up out of the paper, and they would make paper dolls out of them. And they would, you know, oh, you did stupid, right? <laughs> but they loved doing that. So they would spend hours cutting out, and they had furniture, and they had things, and they would make a little house, and they had people, and all kinds of stuff in there. They'd cut them out, and they'd talk, and they'd play like it, and I was going like, okay, whatever. But, you know, so, I, you know, so one day, I, I said, all right, got to figure out what this is about. I want to play paper dolls with you. I'm sorry. It was a weak moment in my masculinity. <laughs> right? But I, want, I said, okay, can, I want to play paper ball. But no. You can't play. You're a boy. <laughs> okay. So when they went down to have lunch, I took their scissors and cut the heads off of every one of them. <laughs> right. 
You don't tell the man that you can't play paper dolls when he wasn't acting like a man, right? So they come back, and they are super mad. So they go into my room, and they take my Matchbox cars, which was a set. Back then, you had these little attache or these little cases you had. Each one had a car, and I had filled them all up and had them all down. It took me tons of time and money to get those. They took them all, and my one sister grabbed me by the hand and pulled me out to the street. My other sister dumped them all into the sewers. Yeah, right? And so needless to say, no, I won't tell you what happened after that, but (laughs) there was a struggle. It was a struggle. We didn't always get along, but I can tell you this, we worked things out. They still owe me for the matchbox cars, but (laughs) we worked them out. You know why? Because, hear me, we're family. We're family. See, how crucial is this? Well, look at verse 2. By this, think of it this way, in this is how, say it this way, this is how, verse 2, this is how we know that we love the children of God because we love him. We love God and keep his command. See, in 1 John, it goes both ways. This is how we know we love God. We love his children. And he says, it's also true, this is how we know we love his children because we love God. It has to go both ways. There is not a vertical part of your spirituality and not a horizontal Because if it's only one of them, if it's only vertical without the horizontal or the horizontal without the vertical, it's just religion. That's all it is. To be Christianity, to be born of God, you have to have both. You have to love God and love others. They go together. Both are absolutely a necessity. And so those of us who have been born again, we know this, that we don't just stay home and watch church. We are the church. You know why? Because this isn't just a religion that you stay home and just watch because it's more convenient on your couch. No, it's a relationship. Do you see what he's saying? It's a relationship. We are the church. We don't just need God. We do. We need each other, he says. That's when you know that you're born again, where you have that understanding and you live it out. He says, see, this is how we know. That we love God because we love his children and second birthmark, second born of God birthmark, we keep his commandments. You know what marks people who are born of God? Obedience. Obedience. We obey his commands, verse 2. We keep his commands, verse 3. See, commandments is used three different times. Once in verse 2, twice in verse 3. And in the text, specifically, it means the commandments to what? To love one another. That's the most important thing. Jesus even called it a commandment in John 13. I've given you a new commandment, that you love one another. This is how people know you're my disciple. This is how. Not your orthodoxy, but your orthopraxy. It's how you love one another. And throughout the book of 1 John, he tells us, listen, you know what comes to my commands? He says, if someone says, 1 John 2, 4, that I know God, but doesn't keep his commandments, he's a liar. Obedience isn't optional. It is essential. It flows from knowing God. Being born of God, God says, it means this, God says something in the scriptures, and you seek to obey it. You seek to do it. You can't be born of God and live a life of perpetual disobedience. 
In other words, you can't say I love God and then live with my girlfriend in immorality. Knowingly. I can't, you can't say I love God and be unfaithful to your spouse. You can't love, say I love God and secretly practice a different life of being addicted to pornography. You can't say I love God and live your life, not just externally, but internally. You can't just say, I have the same mindset that the world does. This is how I view people. This is how I view life, getting ahead, money, pleasure. It's just as if nothing ever happened in my life. We can't have the world's values. We can't use its language. We can't have its desires. See, if that's what marks us, birthmarks us, then we really have never had a spiritual birthday I think John would say this, being born of God is not just external conformity, because all that is is just legalism. No, it's not just going from being a rule breaker to being a rule keeper. See, people think that, oh, you know, I know I've, I've disobeyed a lot of what God says. You know, I'm going to turn over a new leaf, and now I'm going to be a rule keeper. That's not it, because Nicodemus had lived all of his life as a rule keeper, He kept the rules. He kept Torah. He did all the things way more conservative than obedient than almost anybody you could imagine. And Jesus says to this rule keeper, you must be born again. Because it's not just external change. It's internal change. And his commandments, hear me, verse 3, are not burdensome. You hear what he's saying? That's the inside change. It's not just, oh, God says this, okay, this is what I got to do. We used to call them chores. Did your parents ever give you chores? Chores. I mean, it's just an ugly sounding word right off the bat. Chore. You know, it's the things that you don't want to do, but you have to do. Go clean your room. You know, Yosemite Sam. Right? You go to your room, but you don't do it with the right attitude, and you don't even do it the best you can. You do it just to get it done, because you have to. You have to. Imagine it's your anniversary, and it's the day before, and you have forgotten to get your wife something. So you go to the store, you get her something, you don't have a lot of time, so you get her something little, a little card, just sign your name at the bottom, And on your anniversary, you wake up and you give it to her. You say, here you go, honey. It's this little box, $5 gift inside with a little card with your name on it. Oh, honey, I want you to know I really love you. And because it's our anniversary and I had to get you this, here you go. Not overly romantic, right? She's not going to say, wow, that is so thoughtful. She's going to go keep it. Why? Because it was just a chore. You had to. See, when Jesus comes and gives you his life, oh, he gives you all the commandments. And by the way, they don't change. They're still all there. But they're not burdensome. They're not a chore, right? Listen to this change. Paul says to those who serve authority and people who don't always use your authority right, He says this, you do all of your service as unto the Lord. Listen to this, not with eye service, nor as men pleasers, but from the heart. 
Do you hear what he's saying? When you go to work and here's your, you know, Christians are different. You know why? Because, yeah, there are rules and we keep them and we acknowledge and respect our bosses. But way more than that, we're not just doing it to get a paycheck. We're not doing it just to please someone or move up the ladder or have this higher rank or all this. No, we do it from the heart. Why? Because Jesus is our ultimate master. And we know that. And it's changed us. Paul says this. You know how you give money when you come to church? He says, do not do it grudgingly or out of necessity. May I translate for you, burdensome. <laughs> so I don't have to give, oh, they're offering, they're talking about money today again. No, he's not saying that. See, he says, I've told you, you should give. But it's not burdensome. He says, but do it cheerfully because God loves that. And see, that makes a difference for you. So, that's what he's talking about, isn't it? That's what it looks like. That's a born of God birthmark. See, you will have it together. It's not just that you do his commandments. Oh, no, you do it by faith from the heart. That's what he says. The last one, you can see it in verses 4 and 5, and we'll close. Again, everyone, he says this, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it, question mark, that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So there, there it is again. It's believing. It's having faith mentioned twice, but it's also doing something. It's living in victory. John's gospel, written by John who wrote the epistle, starts off in the prologue with this phrase. And God created light and said, let there be light. And then also there was darkness, and it says, but the darkness has not overcome it. And throughout the, all of John's gospel from then on out, it's the darkness trying to overcome mainly Jesus and how Jesus shines and lives his life completely different than everybody else. And though the darkness keeps trying to be victorious over him, it can even when they crucify him and it's dark for a space of hours on the cross. Third day, it says, when the sun began to shine, it was the morning. See, light had come because even that couldn't overcome Jesus. Do you know the only other time, although in our text, overcome the world is said three times in two verses. Do you know the only other use of that phrase in the entire New Testament is in John's gospel, chapter 16 and verse 33, not surprisingly by Jesus himself. And you know how he says it? He says, in the world you will have tribulations. But take heart, I have overcome the world. How could he have overcome the world already? He wasn't going to be crucified for days yet. But when he speaks that, he says, I've already overcome it. Why? Because the victory was already his. See, as I said earlier, because of Jesus and who he is and what he's done, he's the son of God. See, he's the savior of the world because of him and who he's... See, if you know him and you have his life, you already have victory. You're not fighting for it. You're fighting from it. And it changes the way that you face every day and every circumstance and every situation. Every one of them. Some of us as Christians this morning... We're struggling with our birthmark. And you know how I know? Because it's just your job, you think, every day as a Christian to get through it. I just got to endure it. I just got to get past this. And you've lost your joy. And it's, I just got to get through this and make it to heaven. But John says, oh, that's not. See, you're not to live as a victim. 
You live as a victor, he says. You just don't get through it. You're to triumph in it. You know why? Because you know who Jesus is and what he's done. Joe Lewis was a famous boxer. In fact, many think perhaps between him and Muhammad Ali, the greatest ever. For 12 years, from 1937 to 1949, I should say, he was the world heavyweight champion. Right before he started his boxing career, he was getting on a bus in Detroit. And he was the only passenger on the bus until three other guys got on. Knowing he was the only one in the back, they walked back there and started taunting him, trying to get him to fight them. He refused to do it. And when he stood up, they didn't understand how big he was. And when he stood up, they shut up. And when he got off the bus, he turned around and walked back to all three of them and gave him his card. And it said, Joe Lewis, boxer. You know why he had confidence that day? Because he knew who he was and what he could do. And when he stood up, they did too. <laughs> do you know that about Jesus? You know why? Because, listen, being born of God... Having his birthmarks, it won't be easy. You know what needing to overcome means? It'll be a fight. It'll be a battle. But as you face in our world today, maybe you, some of you are facing racial prejudice, maybe office politics, maybe a difficult marriage that never seems to get any better. Emotional instability Fear, depression, anxiety is a constant struggle for you. Sinful habits, prayerlessness, and the list goes on. Can I tell you this? Because you have Jesus and have his life, you fight from victory. From victory. We sing about it. Faith is the victory. We sing that song. But the question is, do we live that truth? Jesus overcame. Now, last thing. How did he do it? I have overcome the world, he says. And I've given you my life, therefore you have my victory. Well, how did he do it? Can I tell you this? Jesus didn't have victory by escaping troubles and suffering and even death. He didn't get it when taunted by the religious leaders to come down on the cross. He didn't do it. That's not how he had victory. He didn't do it from running away from the soldiers in Gethsemane. He didn't do it by any of those things. You know how he had victory? By facing all of them and the power and the strength that the Father gave him and dying on the cross so that he could, as the Bible says in Colossians, be the firstborn from the dead. One of my favorite verses, because John loves this word, overcome, was Revelation 12, 11, which he also wrote. And they overcame him, him meaning the devil, because, two things, because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. So when you have God's life in you through his blood and his birthmark is on you, see, it changes how you live your life so that you can witness for Jesus. And here's what, and they did not love their life, even unto death. That's a cross. How did Jesus overcome the world? A cross, taking up his. How did the people in Revelation? By a cross. So here's what we say. We take up our cross and we say to the world, do your worst. Do your worst. You have no power over us. 
Ultimately, they cannot touch us. And the cross becomes the gateway to life and confidence and victory for all of us because Paul says death has been swallowed up in victory. And that victory is ours. So Martin Luther was right when he put the words to the song, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So let me ask you one more time. Do you have a spiritual birthmark? Let's pray. Well, Father, it is my prayer for those who are here this morning who may be wondering after hearing this text whether they've really been born of God where they really have a spiritual birthmark because when they look at that life and what it looks like, their lives may not represent those truths. Father, I pray that as your Holy Spirit brings conviction and as Hebrew says, critiques the thoughts and intents of our heart, I pray that we'd be humble and honest to recognize the true spiritual condition of our hearts. For those of us today who have the spiritual birthday and the birthmarks, but it's a struggle, a real struggle. I pray that they would find confidence and encouragement by knowing that Jesus has overcome the world and the victory that we have and long for is already ours if we live it out by faith. Help them and us to that end. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.